netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Welcome to this FX Podcast, our 340th episode. This week, we speak to Vico Sherabani, the creative entrepreneur and award-winning creative director, uh, producer, uh, and founder of The Artery in New York. We're speaking to Vico about advertising and creativity on Madison Avenue. Vico is actually a very long-standing friend of FX Guide and an incredibly uh, noteworthy flame artist and visual effects artist in his own right. In fact, he won the first ever Autodesk Flame Award. But he's had a career that spanned much more than just visual effects. And that's one of the things that we talk about in this podcast. In fact, he's established a company in New York that's a creative hub that handles everything from music videos to feature films to stadium graphics to complex visuals uh, involving digital humans. In fact, uh, Cynthia, a digital influencer, I don't suppose we could really call her a digital human. She's kind of like a digital human robot hybrid. But Throughout all of this 30 years in uh, servicing the advertising and entertainment industry, he's been really heavily involved in the management of these processes in a mixed media, uh, mixed silo or cross silo, creative production and technical uh, approaches. He's an incredible guy and his story illuminates what's happened on Madison Avenue over the last 20 or 30 years as we've seen this big shift away from the traditional dare I say, madman model of advertising to this engaged research, engaged customer, um, creative endeavors that his company, The Artery, has so successfully pioneered and uh, and been a part of. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here to the FX podcast. Let's cross now to my chat with Vico. So Vico, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Always, always great to speak to you. I'm, I've been particularly interested to talk to you because I guess uh, when we first met, um, certainly the world had a very different view of the kind of visuals, creativity, and just even the process of making uh, commercials. And looking at it from today's lens, that seems really odd. But back when we were first, uh, you know, got to know each other, um, really there was this sort of very definitive world of what I'd call a TV commercial. And and it was a much more structured world, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, for me, it's funny that you say it, uh, looking from today's lens, because for me, even back then, it, it was odd. Because if you remember, I was, uh, I had a versatile career from the get-go, because my, uh, we can talk about my upbringing and how I got there, but uh, um, I always looked at creativity as being something uh, very wide of combining different things from different disciplines. And when I got to the commercial and advertising world, um, the word creative was, uh, how should I say, almost like uh, uh, taken by the advertising agencies to define a role. And for me, that was an odd thing back then. And as a result, my career actually was uh, uh, somewhat of a struggle at the early years. Yeah, it was very compartmentalized uh, in the sense that there were literally, as you say, creatives, which kind of means that everyone that wasn't a creative was presumably not creative, (laughs) which is an odd, odd, because even in the film industry, of course, you didn't talk that way. You discussed 
in very much more collaborative terms in terms of creativity. But yeah, in advertising back then, there was like there was a producer, there was an art director, um, there were creatives, and then there were people that did uh, effectively directing the commercial and post uh, producing the commercial. And that was for one of a management term, a waterfall model of kind of assuming that one process handed to the next, which handed to the next. Let's run the clock forward to today though, right? Like today, um, you are founder of a company that is multi-disciplinary, uh, incredibly creative, is just as comfortable putting up 20K things at a stadium in the round as it is for doing a uh, a music video or producing a uh, digital human that is a uh, kind of an influencer. Just just quickly give us a perspective on the sort of work or how would you define your company today? Uh, we, we call it a creative company. We always called it a company. If you look at our logo, we literally build the artery around the art. The word art is in the center of our logo. And the, and, and the, the artery is a play on words <laughs> you know if the bakery is where you bake then where do you make art right <laughs> uh, so for us for us it was a from inception uh, was important to define that we're doing everything artistic uh, so we consider ourselves a, a creative company because of my heavy background in visual effects uh, many people kept on having that image of us as a visual effects company. But uh, definitely we've done so many things in so many different industries. We even won a, an AICP award for best music. So uh, the music that we create, created and produced is in the MoMA archives. You know, it's, 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 we don't see creativity through a very narrow lens. I believe that, you know, talking about create, creativity in general is a hard thing, right? Because you talk to a DP about creativity and he thinks it's like the new camera and shooting through materials and coming up with, you know, and if you talk to a, a, a copywriter, they will solve, their creative solution is with words. And we believe that, if you narrow, if the organization is looking through a narrow spectrum, the creativity happens only within that spectrum. And by broadening our uh, um, a, a experience, expertise, capabilities, and interests, we allow creativity to happen in between disciplines. So you're in New York. And if we think of New York and advertising, we think of Madison Avenue and the kind of madman world of uh, <clears throat> of how things were done. So let's just start there as a as a point of departure, and then look at where it is today. So in that old model, you would have a client, a business. They would go to an advertising agency, and the advertising agency had basically two streams of revenue. It had sort of placing the ad, buying the media, and and that was a huge part of their business. And in fact, the kind of primary part of their business, but they also provided the creative for making the ad that allowed them to then buy the media. And of course, over time, that role of being the creative ideas place uh, grew, but also 
uh, there was a point and then that model fractured and you ended up having companies that just bought the media and then just did the creative. And, and in that model, there was big tech required, like you needed big computers and, and complicated things to pull off visual effects. And so you had specialist uh, houses or companies that were taking that material, uh, doing the visual effects and making the masters that would go off to the TV stations. So that was that compartmentalized model. What does advertising look like in 2022 in New York? Like, uh, do you have that kind of sense of an advertising agency with creatives that are then pitching out work or is it go in-house? Like, how is it working in New York? Uh, it's really everything of everything. Uh, what happens is like the the advertising model, the advertising agency model is still there for certain clients. Uh, on the other hand, the world is moving much faster. Therefore, there, there are needs for a, other solutions that don't have the advertising agency that comes in and work on a strategy and it takes them a year to develop certain things and by the time that they come up with a strategy and a plan they're going to start they're going to go and figure out how to produce the work and etc by that time the kpis of the business are long gone because a year in the business for most of businesses today is too long to talk about something without having work to show um so what happens is like certain things still happen like that and we see certain clients that talk to us about like you know the next four years of uh, this fortune 500 company um blah 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 and uh, without getting into details there it's very planned thought thought through and uh, uh trying to uh, create a work plan for that but many clients today come to us to access directly creative and execution. So what happened in the past 10 years is that brands said, okay, we need to talk faster about ourselves. And we know a lot about our product, our strategy, our positioning, and our, our, uh, a, in, in our um, a audience. So they started to be independent of the advertising agencies. For example, PepsiCo is not dependent on BBDO anymore to put out a message, right? So they, right. They're, they're, they're coming up with their creative, they're producing some of the, their work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and all of those um, uh, paths coexist in a way. Because certain things go through the advertising agencies, certain things go in-house, certain things uh, are being uh, outsourced or uh, they come to us for creative. Uh, and uh, because we have that history that we can do the creative, the production, the direction, the, the editorial, um, uh, visual effects, design and finishing, um, then, we're, we're able to do things in a very interesting way, you know. So, I mean, there are, there are still big ads, right? Like there's the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl, definitely, definitely. you know, has those big ads. But the range of skills that a creative company that does uh, 
technology-related communication, and by that I mean communication facilitated by technology rather than than anything else. I mean, you know, today's market, like you've got a company like uh, PepsiCo or Nike, like Nike's a good example. Like they've just done a very successful campaign in the last week uh, involving NFTs and um, and you know, like very complicated stuff in the tech world has creative in there, but like the the comparison between that and a, a TV commercial is, you know, to say uh, a paper aeroplane and a, a jet fighter. It's so that means the skill set that you have to encompass becomes much wider because it's not like you can just have some avids and some flames and some nukes set up and you know get the material that was shot and edited and uh, put some visual effects in. Like surely your portfolio of understanding tech and understanding possible things becomes much much wider. Yeah, but but this is what this is why I told you at the beginning that it, 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 I looked at the industry um, oddly twenty years ago, or whatnot, uh, because. For me, a creative person, that means that you're constantly doing things that you've never done before. And at the highest level, uh, things that nobody even ever attempted. So, you know, I've heard many for many years about companies saying, you know, now we need to do this or we need to learn a new skill or we need to, as if it's a, a, a chore, a task, something that uh, is forced upon you to do business, and for me it was it was always uh, coming from interest, from curiosity, um, from the pure way of being creative. That's that's the definition for me. So I, I've never I was never afraid of that, uh, and I was never looking at my previous work as in a paper airplane and my next job is the jet <laughs> you know I, I i totally understand what you're you're saying but it's it's for me it, it's all extensions you know no, no, I, I mean i'm with you i'm with you in terms of like attitude and obviously i applaud the work that you do but just to be slightly argumentative for the sake of it the thing is though let's say like your mercedes 360 job which was an incredible um proposition to produce in the round in a stadium, a uh, 360 degree, you know, giant video wall effectively. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, that requires developing skills because it had never been done before. But similarly, you've done uh, virtual production stuff that did stuff that, you know, in VR that's never been done before, or at least wouldn't have been something that you had necessarily done before. And so, so to a certain extent as a business uh, founder, isn't there an, uh, a, an like an opportunity cost of like we need to get these skills, we need to understand this problem, we need to learn mm -hmm. this thing? But if I don't have another job in that area, do I not then have just a, mm -hmm. a very tough business model? Uh, a tough business model it is for those who don't operate that way. Okay, but if you look and 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 I'm not saying it, um, I don't want to sound cocky. But if you look at, at our, our uh, portfolio, yep. you will see a lot of one-offs. In 2016, we, we sold our first uh, a app on the Oculus uh, for VR. Yep. But we did not become 
a VR company. Um, we worked with Wes Anderson uh, on, on the Grand Budapest Hotel, but we did not identify as the film guy. We created Mercedes-Benz campaign, but you don't consider us the car company. And we worked with Beyonce and Madonna uh, production companies directly, and we're not the music uh, uh, people, right? Which is, of and course, we- why I'm so incredibly keen to talk to you, right? Because yeah. it's it's an astonishing portfolio. But but you understand that not, it's not a skepticism, it's just curiosity. Like, how do you yeah, not yeah. become the VR company? How do you not? Because the the gravitational pull, if you've got – a really good portfolio of music videos is to you know get more port more music videos because you can go out and say hey look who I just worked with. If you've just right. done great work on a feature film, then you would think that would attract more great feature film work and not attract a car company. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just amazing how you've done it. Yeah. So so there was a very uh, you know me as an artist when I yeah. when I was an artist and there is a step. <laughs> What happens for artists is that they get promoted, in quotes, to a creative direction or or some manager, managerial position. That I, I say in quotes because I don't think that it's necessarily a promotion. It's not for everybody. Uh, but you get an executive position and you get further away from the actual work. And definitely when you build a company, uh, you get more remote from the actual work. And for me... When I made that transition, I consciously said, okay, we're not only going to do creative work. We are going to, going to do the work in a creative way. And that defined that um, nonlinear path that you're describing, the fact that we jumped from one industry to another making an impact in different places uh, and not identifying like it. But I can take you back because this is something that I identified about myself and um, that is critical for me to, to say. The fact that we, we did all of those things are not coming from a business strategy. They're coming from a, a, a deep personality trait. I look back at my childhood and I identified that this is the way that I grew up. My parents did not have money. Uh, they built our own home. My dad literally built a, a, the, a, and expended our apartment in order to fit in uh, the three kids in one bedroom apartment, what started as a one bedroom and expended. Um, my mom was decorating everything. And we, in order to do that, they had to acquire skills in order to solve problems. So my dad became a a really amazing carpenter, but he did not identify as a carpenter. He he would uh, disassemble the VHS in order to see what is wrong with it and bring it back together, but he was never a technician. And I found myself studying sound engineering and at the point that I was almost identifying myself as a sound engineer, I applied everything that I studied to picture. Um, if you think about it, the way that 
sound when I studied acoustics, uh, when, the way that sound bounces from materials is the same yep. way that light bounces. And, and I, I applied all of the things. The EQ became color grading. So bass, middle, treble became shadows, mid-tones, highlights. My sequencer became the edit timeline. My mixing uh, techniques, I applied to green screen uh, a composition because in, it, it's the same thing. You, you put multiple elements in a cohesive environment when you mix the song, and that's what you do when you do green screen. So I, I applied all of those things and, and all of a sudden I had, wait a second, do you do music or picture? And then it continued and, and, and I had to answer end, which really defined me as an end person. So music or picture, end. 2D or 3D, it's not an or question for me, it's end. Do you do commercials or film? End. Do you make uh, a technology or or a, a, you know? And yeah. Every step of the way, I acquire the capability. I mastered it, and I did not identify myself as such. And that's the way that I built the company as an extension of myself. But okay, so. So obviously it's been successful, right? I mean, the reason that I can be slightly argumentative is because clearly you've you've done it. Like, I mean, it's you've done Paula Abdul dancing with herself. You've done like you know VR project. You've done like just all these things, and um, and they're very varied. Let me ask you this question then. So if you are a living proof that it's possible to not be um, a generalist and fail at excelling in any one area, because that's the risk, right? That you, you say that you can do anything and you're not really very good mm -hmm. at anything, which is clearly, as I say, not the case with you or your company. So is that something that's been facilitated or made possible by technology, or is it independent of the rapid changes in technology we've seen in the last 15 or 20 years? So I, I think that, that again, you're, you're trying to tackle it from the place of like, is it possible? And if it's possible, is it right for others? And what I'm trying to say is that it's not um, something that I recommend. It's just what I am. Meaning it might be better to be blonde, blue eyes and tall, but it's got nothing to do with me, you know? So this is just my characteristics manifested themselves as a company. Okay, I, I accept that. And and I and I'm not trying to necessarily get a blueprint for somebody else. But having said that, we have established that the whole industry has shifted from that more structured model to a model that rewards uh, flexibility and creativity, of which you you just happen to be uh, a terrific uh, example. I, still, I would ask the question though: Do you think this structural shift that saw the change from that hierarchical model to this much more agile, flexible model? Was a was a direct consequence of the technology, or it was just the way that things went, and people just found a way of doing it? Um, I'm just curious because uh, it has been the case that there's been a democratization of a lot of tools. Yeah, so I, I think that it's a multiple um, things that happen at, at the same time. So definitely the democracy, democratization of the tools and the availability of them. One allowed for uh, many other peoples that are multi-hyphenated uh, 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 creatives 
to show and, and, and prove that they can do great work. Um, so I believe that there are many other case studies that are, are beautiful and successful uh, and that they uh, opened eyes in certain places. But as much as we're romantic and we're talking about creativity and talent, uh, I also believe that um, financial models and, and, and financial, financial uh, um, needs <laughs> were uh, the catalyst of um, packaging certain jobs in ways that um, led us to where we are. If, if it makes sense, uh, the the at the core of it, there is a, there is an amazing value to do everything in one place. For, I'll give you an example, because we're we're in many cases in control of the creative and the production and the post. Um, there there are certain conversations that in the originally in the conventional structure will be explosive for example if you were on set and the, the director would say listen i want to shoot another two hours over time that's an explosive conversation with a client super tense uh, who's paying for the overage how much does it cost blah 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 because we are in control of the of the whole budget and the whole process it happened to us that we were like you know what we want to go over two hours but don't worry it will save us from the vfx side so go back to craft services and we just wanted to update you you know there's there's something about and and this is an example of something that happens on a daily basis constantly we're like how can we uh, make the editor the editorial more efficient and then move dollars to the vfx so how can we do you know the fact that you're in control of the process, you never have um, a, a, like a conflict of interest between the different departments on the process. It's an amazing experience to have to lead a process that you're in control of as opposed to hearing different producers from different uh, parts of the process uh, arguing about who, who who gets to pocket the money yeah yeah I, I can I can well understand that I think the thing that's terrific is that if we again just use this historical model the historical model had this huge problem that you were basically paying on a on a uh, a marginal basis so you were trying to have a margin and therefore uh, you tended to commoditize the visual effects which was an anti-creative kind of thing to do. And not you, I mean one, yeah, yeah. and that and that in commoditizing it, you would start to compete just on price. And so then it's like whoever has the cheapest capital wins because it's a race to being able to afford to run the company uh, efficiently and effectively. But what that translated to in real terms is more like a factory and less uh, creative, commoditized things, try and reduce the the component of an individual as an artist to being a an IP of how we do this problem and I can swap people in and out at will. 
Yeah, it's so, flipping burgers, but yeah. in a pixel, in a beautiful pixel environment. Yeah. So, so let me discuss management now for a second, because uh, one of the ways that one could assume that if we didn't know that you solved the problem of doing so many different things in so many different ways with really, you know, big kind of uh, creative and technical changes or challenges between them is by just having a staff of hundreds. And, mm -hmm. and I think it comes as a real shock to people as to how small your core team is. How many people are in your company? Um, we got uh, 20 people, 15 to 20 people on staff and uh, we add freelancers. Which is, again, like a very small core group of uh, individuals. And I presume that they have been with you for a while. Like I presume that you don't have a, like a high turnover, that that 15 isn't constantly changing. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so um, last year we got poached. for uh, A few people got poached, but most of the people uh, in the company are very long relationships. Uh, I got like three people with a 20 year relationship, uh, um, uh, you know, quite, quite a few people came to me and said, you know, I've never, <laughs> it's funny because in the past two months I, I had three people tell me, you know, I've never been in, in a company, uh, for so long. And this is the first time. So, uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's long, it's a relationship. It's definitely, a, um, built on relationships as opposed to like, moving uh, people around. So I know that you got an executive MBA from the, uh, I think it was the Berlin uh, no, School I, of... I didn't finish it. Um, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I haven't finished that uh, program, but I'm still in the midst of it. But it was the Berlin School of Creative Leadership, right? Leadership, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, so, so what is the, and again, I know it's just you, but like what is it your approach to managing your team? In other words, is it, that you internally try and not give people labels and compartmentalize them into, well, that's your job and that's somebody else's job over there. Mm -hmm. Do you try and run your company as a set of generalists? And, and also, how do you give them the kind of agency and, uh, and involvement and ownership of the jobs that would foster this kind of long-term uh, loyalty? Yeah, so it, I love this because... It starts at the um, at the interview. When they come in, we usually don't hire for a specific job. We build the job for the specific person. So when when I interview somebody, most of the interviews that I've seen are trying to figure out if that person fits that role. And for me, it's always like, okay, so what it is that you do, what it is that you love to do. I want to understand your strengths. I want to understand your passions, which sometimes they don't, they might be different. Uh, I want to understand where you want to be and um, figure out a path that I know that you will want to keep for a long time. Um, I've actually heard you say that you try and attract misfits, which is a really interesting comment. That, that that's That's also, yeah, I've heard, uh, you know, we hired um, a, one time. We hired um, a, somebody who studied philosophy and computer um, computer science to be a creative director, uh, and he's like he went on 
to uh, to do some very big crypto things now. Uh, so we're very proud and still in touch constantly. Um, we, you know, I hired somebody that got to computer graphics faculty by mistake. He signed up actually. Uh, he, he came from India and he signed up for for advertise. He thought he signed up for advertising. He ended up in computer graphics and. Uh, we, we're building a great career uh, uh, together. Um, uh, I've I've had a designer come all the way from Miami to interview for a flame job, and she thought that it it was like creating effects in CG because she was like flame. That's like you know creating fire. She didn't know about <laughs> about flame. And all of those stories became people that were were very proud to be a part of their career. You know, it's uh, um, it's not that I'm looking for them, but somehow it's it's the, these these are the people that thrive here because each one of the individuals that work here, if you take them to a large thousand people company that has very specific uh, a tasks to do and you're only modeling a rigid body and blah 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 they, they will suffocate on the other hand if you take people from those large organizations that have very strict pipelines and you do only one thing and 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 you bring them over here they'll be like what is it it's too chaotic for me so it's very important that that they when I said misfits, it's just because we are not corporate. We're not the cookie cutter. We're not the same thing over and over. Um, actually, when 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 artists came to me and said uh, a few times, uh, "Listen, I've never done this before," I said, "Great," because the day that I give you something that you've done before over and over and over again. I want you to notify me then, because if you are a designer and I request from you to do a previs or a pack shot of a car, it's, it's intentional. It's not because I don't have work for you. It's because I want a sense of design in that composition. And, um, and this is the way that I work, and and I and I think again, going back to my definition of creativity, if if doing something creative is doing something you've never done before, you need to feel comfortable in it, while um, protecting from the risks of doing something that you've never done before. So I'm usually the um, the, the safety net for those people. It's not that I would put them ever with a, a stressed client to do something that they've never done before, but I do understand either I do a parallel path of two people or I give them more time than needed, or I, uh, I have a solution. I just want to see what they will come up with. You know, these are the, the, these are the tools that I'm using in order to, to, to manage the risk, but still do something new. So internally, are you do, I presume you're just putting teams together on a per job basis, but 
that you become interdisciplinary by not really setting up disciplines in the first place. Is that a fair summation? Mm, yes and, and no. I mean, uh, uh, we, we try, um, we definitely building up the teams for the job, right? Because for us, uh, casting the team is a critical part of the success of, of the project. Right. So we're, we're looking at what is the best uh, thing for the project and how do we cast that? And, and I, if we had, a, if we had more time, I will tell you about like the, uh, how I map out a project in general, what are the uh, areas that you can, uh, we need to look at. We basically mapped it out to, to say every job has like creative, technical budget schedule and client interface. Uh, it's like five pillars that I'm, I'm looking at. And I have this way of um, casting the job accordingly. But um, one more thing that I'm looking at, I, I don't look only at the, the titles of a producer, supervisor, comper, blah, blah, blah. I look also about how do this team cover the cre creative, technical, budget, schedule, and client interface aspects of the job. So the, their roles need also to, together, to cover all, the, all of those five. And, and those five can be covered in, in different ways. Um, so it's, it's uh, I, I hope that, I, I mean, it, it's a little tough to explain in a podcast without visual, but uh, <laughs> I hope that some of the ideas come across. One of the comments I heard you make was that you want the company, um, or you said it's important being uh, an innovation conduit or innovative conductive, I think was you might have quoted. Could you innovative. explain that? Um, yeah. Um, so there are, you know, sometimes when you get to uh, a high level of management within creativity, and then you don't create the work, but you create the conditions for the flowers to bloom. You create the weather. And um, having a company in which many flowers bloom over time consistently, that's what uh, was interesting to me. So I needed to figure out, okay, what are the conditions that will allow for innovation or creativity to spark on a consistent basis over time. And so, so I don't have a, a, a fast answer for you on, on, a, on a quick podcast, but um, I, this is the way that I was analyzing the, what I'm building. You know, at some point, uh, you know, I think it was when I won the Flame Award is that I understood that my art from now on is not another beautiful image and not another beautiful project, but it's the environment in which those things happen. So the culture of your company is something you must give explicit thought to. Uh, there 
like, do you feel that your culture has just evolved around the, what you're doing or have you sort of gone to any explicit lengths to kind of build a culture or a particular approach to stuff that you could share with us? Yeah, so, you know, it's uh, I can't um, be something that is so uh, flexible as I described in the past, whatever time we, we, we're talking, by having a strict culture. So I think that every two years, approximately, things have changed quite a bit here. You know, we've we've moved like uh, every every two and maximum three years. We moved offices, actually. Oh, really? Cause, yeah, because every every time that we expanded, I didn't want to patch it. I wanted a new environment that is right for that. So um, people looked at that, and and again, you know, they they're always saying what it's hard to maintain the creative it's hard to move an office it's hard to all of those things that that, that are hard in quotes for us were just like hey but this is the right path for us and and the culture really changed in a way that for me was actually refreshing because imagine that after two years or three years, you move an office. It's it feels like you're working in a new company. So let's change the tone now, just in the last part of our time together, to look forward and get a couple of your opinions on uh, elements that are entering into the the range of uh, things that might come across your desk or could be incorporated into creative solutions that your team might be. Um, be working on. So firstly, I'd be really interested in your views on the role of uh, AI and these new tools for inferring visual uh, imagery and inferring behavior that is plausibly um, uh, something that we would accept as having been either created by somebody or um, previously uh, only been possible manually. So I'm not saying AI as in like uh, supercomputers that take over the world. I'm talking about there is now a, a large body of visual and, um, and as I say, sort of uh, experiential things that are being um, simulated, I guess, um, inferred by machine learning that is changing what is possible. Where, where do you sit with that technology? Um, look, it, it's moving super fast, um, and it's um, it's something that we are playing with in different uh, levels. You mentioned uh, that that we created a TikTok uh, uh, talent, uh, Cynthia. Um, so we are. We are collaborating with technology companies in multiple parts of it. One is the AI aspect of what is the brain of uh, an AI character. Another is like what can be done interestingly for animation perspective and uh, um, 
there's there's quite a lot of development and a lot of money being thrown into everything with a buzzword metaverse or uh, uh, digital humans right now. So a lot of focus is is uh, happening there. Um, you mentioned experiential, and that threw me to uh, a, 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 what's the name of this place? Artec. Artec. Uh, it's a gallery here in New York that we went the whole company to to watch. Uh, Rafik's, um, can't remember his last name, uh, a, a video artist that works with machine learning on these huge experientials that uh, are very exciting to see. Um, so everything from pixel manipulation and, and content creation to creating a brain of uh, autonomous AI that can talk to you. Um, there's so many exciting developments that I, I don't know even where to start. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a hardcore participant in the kind of research of what you might call the metaverse, but, but in the particular, not in the abstract. So I walk away from the discussions of like kind of, um, these big kind of lofty things, because I'm much more interested in the really interesting, dynamic and creative things that are happening in the specific. Uh, a good example is in the fashion industry, which of course also tends to have um, an epicenter around New York, because the you know the idea that people can buy digital clothes and you can have mm -hmm. NFT clothing seems to be a really interesting area that might be the sort of thing that would hit you guys because it's both artistic, creative, digital, experiential, and quite uh, quite in need of a different mindset because you're not creating a digital copy of a T-shirt. You're creating something new in a way that uh, kind of needs to redefine taking those tools and using them in a new in a new fashion. Yeah, um, definitely. There's many talks and tests and R&D and um, a, a beautiful things that, that are happening. Um, fashion is one of them. Uh, I got to admit that we talked about it early on and we ended up not doing that necessarily. Um, but uh, you know me, I'm also, I'm not, I'm, I don't come from the academic world. If it's not practical, if it's not like something that we, we can do right now or in the very near future, um, uh, then it's on the back burner of R&D. It's not like a focus of our uh, activity. I, I mentioned um, it because you've done Cynthia and, and yep. this is a really interesting project of a, of a mm -hmm. I, would, I would say a digital human, except she's kind of like a digital robot. Yeah. Um, so she would be a prime candidate for digital clothing. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So we, we are, we are talking about uh, multiple, multiple ways to do that. And it's not only the execution, it's more of like, what is her, um, a voice or point of view that mm. is different on that uh, place. In, in in general, like just just to give a, a, a quick glimpse of what we're going through, Cynthia is a robot with a 
female face. And female looking robots were over sexualized for decades. And for me, it's very important that we don't do that, especially not in 2022. And I think that the approach that we're taking shows in the statistics of our followers, because we got 68% women followers for something that usually was overly sexualized. So um, when we talk about clothes, when we talk about body shape, when we talk about like these areas, we we have a larger consideration than just uh, a, a make a, a make a dress blow in the wind, or or the design of the clothes. I, so I, I don't want to get to it too far, but um, a, I totally understand what you're saying, and we're definitely interested in participating there on a uh, impactful, in an impactful way. We have some conversations with fashion designers and, and companies and really hope that something will happen soon. So, so to sort of connect a bunch of these dots together, so Cynthia is of interest to me in many levels, but one of them is kind of interesting. It relates to what we've been discussing about today, which is the company's kind of focus, because that's not a project born from a client that's born from your team correct yes uh, for, for me i i in 1986 I, I it was the first time i visited london and i saw max headroom and uh, since then i've been obsessed of building virtual characters uh um, one thing led to another and, and cynthia is the the biggest project in, in terms of followings and and uh, and and, and I, I guess, could not believe, you know, that is exactly where I am. I mean, in fact, I made a pilgrimage when I went to New York to go to the Museum of Modern Art and uh, take my photo next to the permanent exhibit of Max Headroom <laughs> uh, because, because I agree with you. But um, But I guess my thing is like that clearly shows that the company is devoting some percentage of its time and effort into internal uh, projects that are just... I guess, like, how would you view that? Would you do that as an R&D exercise? Would you view that as an experiential uh, test? Or would you just view that as a um, as something that came up and you just thought, hey, why not? Let's just have a play. So it's a combination of things that, that got to mature. Uh, basically, Cynthia, uh, again, I wanted to do that for a long time. Then COVID hits. And we had the most amazing year, uh, 2020. It was super creative. So we we wanted to sum up the year in an in a interesting way. And we just um, uh, pitched a client with a digital human, and they said no. And I said I'm done with pitching it to others. And, <laughs> and we just we just did it ourselves. And we created the impactful montage. It won also some awards. And um, once this was done, I said, wait a second, I have those snippets of, of, of sentences that she says. Why don't we put it on TikTok? And immediately we had like 100,000 views or something that I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, we didn't do anything. We just put it up and... And we said, okay, we forgot for five months and we had uh, a week of downtime. So we made another video and all of a sudden it's a million. So um, 
it, we escalated the um, the investment there for sure. Um, you know, we we've all been through companies that they, we're all creative uh, and talented people that want to do something creative, and we try to build like creative uh, projects. But the Cynthia really became like a platform more than a small project. But you've sort of done that before, haven't you? I mean, it may be slightly different, but like, for example, I know when you did the website for the company, you kind of took yes. that on as a, uh, again, almost like a project. A branding, yeah. Yeah, totally. not just a, a thing That's that true. had to get done. Yes. Um, so I guess the thing about that is a bit like the website, a bit like Cynthia, it's it's sometimes a matter of you guys saying, well, we're going to do this creative thing, not because I have a deliberate uh, task in hand, but by the same token, you are kind of informing the skills, the creative freedom and the, I guess, creative sort of repertoire that the team has. And those explorations don't have to be client focused to still be valuable. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we are the best client for ourselves, right? At the end of the day, um, if, if we, uh, if we are selling to a client, the fact that we can make them look great and we don't look great. What does it say about our sales pitch? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, there's a great line on your website, I think, where you say something about you set the creative bar very high for yourselves, but then, of course, that means you have to hire pole vaulters. <laughs> and and I, I love that, uh, that, that expression. But, yeah, I, you do need to, to kind of live what you – project for clients because, you know, at the end of the day, that's the nature of the business, isn't it? Like somebody comes to you with something that presumably no one's ever seen before, presumably the, you know, the core of what you do is stuff that is original, that is creative and different. You can't show someone that in advance. They have to sort of buy into your, your mm. team and your vision because only at the end of the project do they have that thing that no one's ever seen before that you can't sort of you can't sell like a, a, a something you can try on in advance or a car that you can test drive. You have to um, say, hey, let's go on a journey together. And the only thing you have to prove that the journey is going to be any good is that you've been on some previous journeys that were good. Exactly. The statistics of your successes is, is something that is like, you know, somebody uh, came to me a few years ago and said, okay, uh, you're showing me Wes Anderson. That's a once in a lifetime type of project. And then they're like, wait a second. Also the production, uh, virtual production, that's also kind of uh, cool. And you know what? The bus that is rotating on uh, in Radio City, that's pretty. And, and all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. There is a, an accumulation of unique things mm -hmm. on, the, on this portfolio. And... The funny thing is that the jobs do not come in this way. They get solved this way. And that's what makes them great. Well, look, it's been so great talking to you. Uh, and uh, I mean, great to catch up, but I do admire your work tremendously. And I also, as I say, admire this idea of being able to successfully do this over a sustained period of time. Because while I know that you would argue, well, this is just how you are and this is... Um, only relevant uh, in terms of just how you find yourself in the world. For us looking in from the outside, it is uh, very inspiring to see a company that manages to, 
consistently and profitably move forward doing these things on such a uh, uh, a great mandate of creativity. So thanks for sharing your uh, your thoughts with us today. Wow, thank you very much, Mike. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. I'm Mike Seymour. Hopefully, John Montgomery will be joining us again next time. Um, Paul, John has lost his voice, though he's not the only one that's been sick. I must admit, I had extremely bad COVID uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, even though I'm triple vaccinated. So hopefully you're well. But again, thank you so much for joining us for this FX podcast. Can't believe it's 340, but uh, it's great. And it's great uh, having people like Vico, who we've uh, known for like 20 years, uh, back on the show and doing such amazing and creative work. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.